Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today on the program, my guest for the hour is Tersha Delgin, author of The Man Who Thought He Owned Water. It's out from University Press of Colorado. When Tersha Delgin's uh, father bought his farm, Big Bend Station in Colorado, he also bought the ample water rights associated with the land in the South Platte River, confident that he had secured the necessary resources for a successful endeavor. Water immediately proved fickle, however. Hard to defend, sometimes dangerous. Eventually, those rights were curtailed without compensation. And through her family's story, Delgin frames the personal-scale implications of water competition, showing how water deals, infrastructure, transport, and management create economic growth, but also sever humans' connections to Earth's most vital uh, resource. Tertia Delgin is a social activist with deep Colorado roots, special interest in water policy, water conservation, and the tension between agriculture and metropolitan claims on water. She's a San Diego-based writer and water resources consultant. She also oversees a working farm on the South Platte River in Colorado with her family. Tersha Delgin, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Tom. So you're now based in San Diego, but uh, you grew up, I understand, in Denver, and then a, a bit, I guess, out at the farm. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I wonder, wonder uh, this is uh, your chapter on uh, corn. I want to get to, we'll, we'll loop back to that. But you're describing your father, who uh, you know, who worked for years as a milkman, for example, and and uh, other things, and to uh, to be able to get out and and become a farmer. Um, and I'll just read this couple sentences. My shoot was different, Californian, more progressive than conservative, a reader, organic tendencies, friends who are academics, artists, and designers. I'm an own type, everything but the yoga mat. So I like that that description. I guess that, that that describes you now. Yes, it does. Pretty much, except that being uh, acquainted with farming, luckily to be acquainted with farming, and also being an activist about water here in San Diego, both of those things have exposed me to um, issues that many people don't have as much exposure to, and then and so I'm lucky that way uh, to kind of, and that's why I wrote the book, to try to bridge that difference toward the things that I had learned. Yeah, you you have a background that uh, I guess a lot of your associates here in California wouldn't have, right? You you have that, that uh, I do. tie to I agriculture. I really, really lucky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really uh, lucky. By the way, from that description, I I assume you're you're uh, associated with public radio, you listen, public radio listener. If not, you should. Because that, that's that's the type. Um, anyway, um, so uh, and and one of the things, and we'll we'll get back to your grandfather's and your father's uh, history here. But uh, you uh, early on in the book, you describe a uh, childhood trip to the state capitol in uh, Denver, and there you encounter, uh, in a way, your great grandfather, who's who's a former governor. Yes, that was a. You know, everyone was so excited that our our relative was in the rotunda. His, his uh, likeness in stained glass up there under the gold dome. <laughs> <laughs> this is um, Benjamin Harrison Eaton. Yes, and so an early settler who came west looking for gold and didn't find gold, and then uh, learned about ditches from uh, the native peoples, really, and thought, huh, why don't I try this? <laughs> yeah. Now, there, you talk about this phrase, industrious plotter. Is that really, is that his inscription? It's a, it actually says honest plotter. Uh, honest plotter. Uh, P-L-O-D-D-E-R. I know, it's like, <laughs> plotter? What's so great about that? But the, it is, you know, and um, writing about it uh, forced me to think about it more carefully, especially um, as contrasted with these times when everybody's scurrying around, doing everything as quickly as possible. That idea of going slowly is a curious one to examine. Uh, and it, So this was put forward, at least at the time, as, as a positive, right? And he was... Uh, he, I guess, yeah. I guess. <laughs> so, yeah. And, it, it's, and it's interesting also because to think of it in a relationship to water that sometimes moves so slowly and sometimes moves so quickly. And... You know, most of us don't even think about that kind of thing. We just go to the faucet and we're happy it's there. Mm -hmm. But um, being around the farm and being on land a lot, um, I've just learned to marvel at it. It's um, so interesting to watch things moving gradually and then 
and also see how they can change overnight mm-hmm. due to water. So now, in the time of uh, Benjamin Harrison Eaton, um, and he was he became a waterman as as you as you mentioned, he learned about ditches and irrigation. Resonates, of course, with with a lot of people in Utah. Um, you have this quote: "Abundance leads first to false expectation and second to imbalance." But uh, yeah, but that in, might have been a little bold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, talk about that, if you would. Um, I put my in that chapter, which is called "The Nuisance of Hindsight." See, I I hadn't. I was very. Um, spoiled as a child with, um, you know, every advantage. And that uh, gave me the impression as a human, I guess, that that would go on and on. And so looking at um, those early times of settling the West in Colorado and Utah, too, looking at them... um, in terms of what that might have meant to the land at that time, was like was really interesting to me, and it it's the West it, it still is it's so vast you know when we fly over it going quickly obviously we we see this this huge terrain but when you go sort of an inch at a time or not an inch because we're bigger than that but you know when you go slowly, uh, you see the impacts more carefully, or at all. So um, my expectations were changing, or have changed during my lifetime, as we see what going quickly has visited on our planet and our country. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I wonder, uh, do you have your book with you? Yes, I do. Uh, I wonder if you'd read uh, just this, the half page, uh, Roman numeral 9, the, the, the beginning of the prologue. Uh so um, it starts with a quote, um, truth has no special time of its own. Its hour is now always. That's from Albert Schweitzer, who wrote something I'd never heard of before on the edge of the primeval forest. And then I begin. Like most of us, the man made assumptions about water. Water was an entitlement, a long shower, fluid in the radiator, and the reason his wife wore rubber gloves at after dinner. Then he moved his family to Big Bend Station, a farm that sits atop a hefty aquifer and next to the most important river on Colorado's Front Range. The farm's location, deeded water rights, and Rocky Mountain snowmelt made my father the man who thought he owned water. He was a version of all who trust that weather, rivers, and government will deliver the wet stuff. Yet his is a story no other water book, no other farm book, no other climate book is telling. Lots of people fantasize about a country life, but few grasp the desperate and complex water issues that challenge the American-grown food on which we all depend. Is it common for trespassers to divert water at gunpoint, for water conflicts to result in suicides? Why is America's most irrigated crop one we can't even eat? Is costly flooding inevitable? Who sanctions oil and gas infrastructure, a stone's throw from water and food supplies? So those are some pretty uh, hard-hitting uh, questions. We'll, we'll get to as many of those as we can during the hour. I want to, first of all, uh, have you tell your father's story. His, as I understand, his father was pretty well-to-do. Your grandfather? Had a, uh, no, my great-grandfather. Your, your great-grandfather. Oh, this is the governor. <laughs> this is the governor. Uh, he had a... Great, great, yeah. It was some greats away, but... Um, um, so he had a, a nice, uh, what you describe as a gentleman's farm. Some very nice buildings, including a three-story uh, building out, I guess, near where your father ended up. Uh, tell me about that place. Um, I only went there once with my father after my great-grandfather died. I was a little girl, and he held me up to the windows. He was the realtor. <laughs> so I wasn't familiar with it and ha- haven't been there as an adult, even though it isn't all that far from the farm. Um, um, there's there's so much that's interesting at our farm that I don't seem to ever get away from there mm-hmm. to go visit elsewhere. But um, that lifestyle um, appealed to my father greatly because he was um, sort of left without mooring by his op- own upbringing, and so it gave him a dream 
mm-hmm. to go after it in his own adulthood. So he um, sort of got it together as a young man or a young adult and um, wanted to raise enough money to be able to buy his own farm and to retire there by the time he was 40. And um, he did that through ranching, mostly uh, ranching for the Gates Rubber Company, mm-hmm. uh, for um, which he worked, Denver Company. And you you describe yourself as a, a type. I guess you know we're all a quote unquote type. Your father is is a type, and and uh, it, it's a type that we hold up, kind of an ideal, don't we? Um, amb- ambitious, wants to get back to the land, and uh, burning drive, which he certainly seemed to have including working for some years as you were growing up as a milkman. Yes, um, I think more um, in, in a later chapter, it's he, in, in um, taking on ranching and buying ranch property for um, this corporation, learned about uh, the other aspects, I guess, to cattle, not just um, dairy, but and cities, um, but also um, to cultivating food. Um, and so, and, and he was brave in that he really didn't, when he started, he, know, he knew nothing about it, but he knew enough to um, attract and cultivate people who did and to work with them toward getting the results he was after so he was lucky that way and the farm was sort of a whole other nut to crack but <laughs> that's how he was in his early life so that uh, he didn't achieve this all at once right so that you you grew up uh, most of your years in denver but then then out at the farm yes. a bit yes i grew up in denver and also at the at the ranch he managed in mm-hmm. wyoming i want to get to the title and this is a, there's several different meanings here. Um, the man who thought he owned water. Water, of course, is essential. I mean, not only to life, but to to a successful operation like the one he wanted to to build and did build. Right? You you have to have the water rights. Right. I think the idea of ownership is the one that's um, curious. I mean, he it's sort of the emphasis in the title is on thought because it's um, the idea of owning something as um, it's on the move, the way Colorado, I mean, the way water is, is um, inaccurate. Because it's in Colorado and in Utah, too, the water, uh, you know, you can go buy a gallon of it, or you can, um, but then, you know, <laughs> that's it. It's owned, uh, what's, o- what's owned is the right to use the water. So, and that's a kind of a legal construct, or not a kind of, it is a legal construct. So the prior prior appropriation system that's at work in both Utah and Colorado and um, throughout the West started in Colorado and then spread outward from there. Hmm. So I don't know if you want to get into that. It's a little bit hairy. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll maybe get into it a little bit later. Uh, but you do, uh, you do a deep dive, uh, I'm sure, for the research for the book, and then some of this is in the book, you know, water rights, senior rights, junior rights, uh, you know, all of all of uh, all of these terms, which you know, if you're involved in agriculture, you you have to you have to know these things. I'm interested in your perspective. You have the, this perspective from your father's dream. You lived a little bit on the farm, then you wanted to get away, right? You you didn't want to be a bumpkin, <laughs> which, right? Which I think you know, a lot of us can can understand. There are a lot of people who take that journey. It's um. It's a it's an interesting thing because we are so reliant on our um, rural areas for food, and yeah, we want to get away from them. <laughs> yeah. And in taking on uh, the project, I didn't come to this quickly, but what ended up happening was in talking with my city friends about what I was doing and so forth. I was. Um, it was, you know, I, it was like, it was as if I was looking in the mirror. You know, I would be talking with someone I'd been friends with for a long time, a city person, you know, wearing with city um, biases and habits, and they wouldn't get what I was talking about because I'd be talking about, you know, farming or 
uh, weeds or whatever. And, and you know, so I be- I was becoming tedious. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I I wanted in writing the book to put it in terms that would I guess seduce city people. And so I worked really hard on the writing. And I have a I mean I am a I've, I've been a writer for a long time, so I'm fortunate to have practiced that. But it's um, a all this is really complicated, but it's also really lovely if you do kind of slow down enough to figure it out. And there's every reason to do this because this is what our food is about, mm-hmm. and it's in jeopardy. So, yeah. or in the um, in a lot of ways. Let's take uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, pick up on that thread. I was just going to ask you, uh, you know, what would you tell people, especially city people, why water matters? And you just uh, picked up on the first thread there. Water is food, right? Food is water. Um, but it gets us into climate change as well. And um, soil is very important, right? Uh, vegetation is right. very important uh, for carbon sequestration, among other things. So we'll get to talking about uh, those things as well, along with your family's history, which is, uh, which is fascinating. Uh, more follows the break. Next time on Living on Earth, biodiversity advocates sue the EPA for failing to prevent the oceans from becoming too acidic. They know that it's their duty to set water quality standards and that the current standards are inadequate. Every leading scientist acknowledges that pH is not a good way of measuring ocean acidification. What's at stake for life in the sea? I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Etched Magazine, an artistic expression of life in the Southwest. Celebrating the desert dwellers, adventure seekers, soul searchers, art lovers, and the culture creators who reside within the grandeur of the great Southwest. More online at etchedmagazine.com. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we're talking about water, a fascinating topic, of course, especially in the arid West. And uh, Tertia Delgin's a new book, very interesting book, is The Man Who Thought He Owned Water. The subtitle is On the Brink with American Farms, Cities, and Flood. And it's out from University Press of Colorado. When Tertia Delgin's father bought his farm, he also bought the ample water rights associated with the land in the South Platte River, confident that he'd secured necessary resources for a successful endeavor. But water immediately proved fickle, hard to defend, sometimes dangerous, and eventually those rights were curtailed without compensation. Tertia Delgin became a social activist and a special interest in water policy, water conservation, and the tension between agriculture and metropolitan claims on water. That's where I want to start to this segment, Tertia Delgin, that uh, tension. And you treat this, of course, in the book. You focus on the on your father's uh, place, Big Bend uh, Station, um, but, but the themes are universal, of course. Um, once you cross, and you talk about this in the book, once you cross the 100th meridian, uh, things become arid, at least comparatively. It, it always it always amazes me when I when I go back east, how green everything is. We kind of become used to it, and I wonder, especially living in, in cities, if we just sort of become isolated from these issues. It's true. We become isolated because the cities have plenty of water, <laughs> so we don't notice so much, or we think we have plenty of water anyway. Yeah, that's the thing. We 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 think we so we don't think much about about this. Is is that how much did how you got into, um, you know, becoming an activist, especially on water policy? Um, I um, became active in my own neighborhood in San Diego uh, because I was scared after nine eleven. Is kind of a, a little bit smarmy story, but my son was. 11, and he was in school, and I was um, around a lot of academics and um, people who were saying that our government was doing the wrong thing in response to um, the attacks, and I was listening to everyone say, this, you know, this is wrong, this is wrong, and I thought, i got to do something. I don't want to just talk about this. And I um, thought um, that my version, everyone has a different version on what went wrong, but my version was that it's the sense that our that the con the conflict is essentially in some way about resources, and I wanted to um, grow resources rather than deplete them. So that was my little, um, I suppose, grail. And um, 
so that's the the work that happened here happened in um, urban canyons, um, but it got me looking at water. So it also uh, made me aware of how government works because we needed a lot of help from the government um, for our work here. And then at the same time, at my parents' farm, the um, groundwater rights were curtailed in Colorado. And since they were rights that my father had paid for, I thought, what the heck is going on, you know? How could these? How could the government seem to usurp um, something that had been paid for as a property right? And uh, when I started looking at it, it was a very involved uh, process that um, to distill it. You know, there there are more people than there is water supply, and the farmers um, have the right, the water rights to an enormous, or at least the bulk of the water, because they need it to grow food, not because they're running through the hose or using it for pools. <laughs> and um, the growth of the cities continues, or can continue, because the cities have most of the voters and the farmers represent a pretty small constituency that feels, um, at least in my experience in Colorado, marginalized politically. And so that, so, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say, so that even though you're, you know, on a farm there, you're closest to one of the important rivers, you know, the Platte, um, it, water, you know, flowing through your property, and you're in one of the upper states in in, in the compact. Um, the, the water can be taken away. Uh, tell me how how the water rights were curtailed. In what way? What? How much was taken uh, away? Well, it was. It's you know, it's a whole book, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it and it's um, but it's happening in other forms throughout the West. What um, the cities have, and and industry too. You know, for. Um, the oil company, the energy companies have a lot of money, at least compared to the farmers, and they ha- can afford um, to hire attorneys and engineers and take a, a long run at complicated problems. That I mean, complicated acquisitions. Um, so. At our farm, there, the, the, all this coincided with the drought in the early part of the millennium, and so the it was, you know, the the need for the water intensified. But in the previous um, years, since the 70s or since forever, really, you know, since settlement, more and more people were coming, and more and more people needed water, and more and more people needed food too. And this is the piece that forgotten or not part of the present conversation that I'm hoping the book will um, point to is that uh, we've been looking at farming as, oh, they've got so much water, let's get some of that for the cities. Um, But that, it doesn't make sense because the people in the cities are eating, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. it's, and so... um, I feel I'm kind of spinning here, Tom. Can you bring me back in? <laughs> no, this, but this gets us. This gets us to the crux of the matter, isn't it? Uh, I mean, part of this is is energy extraction, uh, fracking, for example, is very water intensive. But putting that aside for a moment, um, this tension between um, you know the, the the farm, the agriculture, we need the food. Um, and the cities, people want to live in cities, and the cities are growing, so you, you got to have have water, and then something has to has to give. Can that be balanced? I don't know, but I thought when I started the book that I would have a good answer. But what I realized is that um, we all need to think about this. It's going to require a huge amount of thinking. This, the um, water 
in farming moves along. It goes into the, it goes, some of it, you know, maybe about half goes into the actual crop, and then the rest is evaporating or going back into the aquifer downstream or moving on. But it's, um, and the same in cities, this, this sewage um, is treated and goes back into um, use after that. But what we're putting in the water is a whole other, you know, is a whole other knot of um, concern. Including pharmaceuticals. Including pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And the cl- Harder and to get out. Products and all these, mm-hmm. um, they call them contaminants of concern, which are not presently being um, removed from the um, water. And even those that are, are then, you know, in biosolids, are then um, reused in for fertilizer. And st- I mean, we're just, we're taking a lot of stuff out of the ground and cooking it up in labs and without really good means of um, dealing with it afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, I'm, I'm normally an anxious person anyway, so I'm all primed to be this um, person I already am. But it's also, I want to say, that it's so rewarding to involve, for me, it's been very rewarding to involve myself in um, reparation activities and restoration and trying to help our farm and so forth. It's just intellectually and creatively stimulating. And those, those and the people are so great. The people yeah. are so great. <laughs> and th- this kind of activity is going on uh, in in you know uh, rural areas, I believe. Um, I want to move it to the city. So in in your place, San Diego, I was reading an article you wrote um, about trying to reclaim the pavement, reclaim the you know get more vegetation because that's important for the climate. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. I wonder what article that was. What have I done now? <laughs> it was. I I think that, um, for instance, right now it, here in San Diego, there's a light drizzle, and I'm watching out the window. I look out the window, and there's asphalt, and there are curbs, and the and it's a hill, and the water's headed straight west toward the ocean, without being reclaimed or without going into growing trees on its way or without growing vegetables on its way. It's just um, moving. And we've paved over a lot of our planet. That's the reason we have what they're calling the Anthropocene now, the um, phase after the Holocene that we're in. That we've, Humans have changed um, the geologies and the geographic um, terrain so much that it's a it's a whole new epoch. So by getting when I think about, for instance, there are cracks in the you know we're an underfinanced city, so of course there are cracks in the pavement. Okay, so if there are cracks in the pavement, gosh, is the water going in there? I'm really like I feel like getting out there with a jackhammer, planting a tree so we could have more habitat. If you hear I'm in jail, that'll probably be why. <laughs> We'll try to get some bail for you. <laughs> but the other part about the farmers is they deal with this all day long, every single day. They, they're they trying to uh, grow food, or they are growing food, and a lot of them are very um, marginalized. You know, they're politically different, much different than I am. And it's um, And when I talk with them, I think, you know, it makes me want to cry. It's because they're really smart. They're not um, bumpkins at all, but they don't have a place in our country that feels supported. And they might not be farming all of them the way that we in cities would like them to farm, but they're not farming the way they want to farm in some cases either. They're locked in with vertical integration and so forth into buying seeds from a certain place, selling a crop, you know, nearby where they can. And all these things, you know, it's just a great big cry for help and solidarity and not finger-pointing. Hmm. Um, but the, the the trends are against you, aren't they, to what you're advocating for? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. But that, of course, only makes it more intriguing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What what about the what about the 
uh, what about big ag? You know, some people would say, well, you know, we're should be okay. Big ag can fight for themselves, can't they? They're they're big and powerful and rich. Well, in our lifetimes, I'm probably about twice your age, but in my but in my lifetime, then it's um, we've been um, lackadaisical about our democracy and our leaders and um, blaming them when they don't do what we want them to do, but not helping our systems. And I'm speaking, you know, I'm generalizing here. There are lots of people who are really involved. But I haven't been, not until the last 15 years. And by becoming involved, what I've learned is, I mean, these people are only human. There's only so much that they can um, know and do, and they need... um, more information, and they need more involvement by citizens. And it's um, big ag um, is there because we let it be there and because we're all eating burgers, because you know, and burgers needed corn, and it was inexpensive. And, it, and then I think probably people that c- can afford better food have gradually become more aware. But there's still a lot of people that, who are who are poor, who are working really hard, who don't have the money to or the time to um, eat well, and we have a problem. <laughs> hmm. I wonder. Um, I want to get back to. Uh, I'll go back to uh, the urban areas, and uh, I'll ask you a little later if we can conserve our way out of uh, the problems. But I want to go back to the farm. You have a interesting um, chapter about corn and this is a human drama here the the in fact to you you call your chapters spectacles let me ask you that first why do you call them spectacles oh I think I sort of got away with that my editor might have wanted me to call them chapters (laughs) but as I looked at them I thought that each was kind of a um, an oh oh my gosh situation where you look at something just a little bit and you think, oh, that's all very nice and beautiful. And then, you know, around the corner, the whole thing begins to blow up or fall apart. But it's, um, yeah, so that's why it's called spectacles, because they are. It's, they're spectacles. Each, and things, things, the things that have happened there have been truly spectacular. (laughs) So the, the spectacle is uh, titled Hypocrisy in a Colonel, and it starts with this, this human drama. Uh, you, your brother, and your mother are in a lawyer's office, um, this attorney named Ann Castle, who would later go on to, to prominence, um, is, is, is taking you through this you know, legal labyrinth. And she says something very interesting, which you, I think, wish you had pushed back on at the time. She says, well, the farmers aren't blameless either. Right, I still don't even. I'm still not sure of what she was talking about. And uh, maybe she'll call in. Maybe she'll call in. <laughs> maybe she'll call in. But you, you uh, hypothesized maybe she was talking about corn. What? Uh, tell me about corn and why, why that might fit in there. At the time, I thought that was it. You know, that when I think about, um, you know, because of Michael Pollan's work and others, we've um, come to understand. Um, or look at corn, you know, through kind of narrowed eyes, and as a very, um, uh, uh, I guess, successful in terms of how used it's been, the corn, the GMO corn, um, is, uh, you know, and was when I wrote that chapter, uh, highly suspicious. (laughs) So I took the opportunity to really look at it. And there, you know, there are a lot of things that are um, able to be justified about GMOs because they use fewer inputs, but there are also, as we know, too, downsides. So, and at our farm, um, which is very near a big feedlot, um, corn um, was, was a, an excellent crop and while we had water. <laughs> because it's um, it does use a lot of water, but on the other hand, the whole plant is also used 
for to, for meat. And there again, meat is you know open to um, a lot of criticism. Um, also, so the whole thing is that's why hypocrisy, because the whole thing feels sort of like I was walking on a little ledge there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and and again, bring it back to water. Uh, meat is is more highly water intensive. I understand. So that's why. It, uh, well, it's it, meat. Yes, I mean a hamburger is four hundred or five hundred gallons of water go into making a ham. You know, we've all heard these statistics. Um, and by comparison to uh, um, lettuce or you know something lower, but the thing the thing that happens is that in the pro and I I'm not the expert on this, but um, the animal is eating grass and, and corn in some cases and turning that vegetative matter into um, protein into amino acids and can. I'm, about to go where a scientist might want to rein me in, but it it's making um, it's doing some of the. You'd have to eat a lot of uh, vegetables to get the amino acids. So you that are in that small amount of meat, maybe. So it it kind of I'm you know I wish I knew more about this Tom, but I don't. So mm-hmm. it's. Um, uh, so some of these yeah. change, some of these changes uh, overall would would you know we as consumers would have to change. You know, the farmers just going where the where the market is. That's I guess that's one thing. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to hear what's conservation measures, preservation measures you're doing out at the farm there in in Colorado. And I want to talk about uh, what uh, city dwellers can can do in, the, in their individual lives to, to to help with some of these problems, water problems, conservation. Uh, being one of those initiatives. Uh, we'll talk more with Tersha Delgin. Her book is The Man Who Thought He Owned Water. More follows this break. Next time on Ask Me Another, Natasha Leone tells us how to pack for a double feature day watching her new movies, Anti-Birth and Yoga Hosers. And I like a, a sensible shoe. I always carry a spare pair of panties. Metro card, $20, ID. So I would suggest, you know, that sort of a strategy. Join me, Ophira Eisenberg, for NPR's Hour of Puzzles, Word Games, and Trivia. Join us Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Culligan Water of Logan, serving Cache Valley for more than 66 years, providing Culligan bottled water, whole home systems, soft and conditioned water, Hey Culligan Man service from the man in blue, Details at CulliganLogan.com. On the next Radio Lab, He died in Ross's arms and he was surrounded by the people that loved him. A grieving mother tracks down her baby's donated organs. I used to think the universe treated people the way it should, and now I don't really believe that. And she finds solace in the most unexpected places. There are kind people in the world, and science and medicine has something to do with that. Gray's Donation on the next Radio Lab. Join us Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Tersha Delgin. She is a social activist with deep Colorado roots, special interest in water policy, water conservation, and the tension between agriculture, agricultural and metropolitan claims on water. Uh, she's a San Diego-based writer and water resources consultant. Her book out from University Press of Colorado is The Man Who Thought He Owned Water. The subtitle is On the Brink with American Farms, Cities, and Food. You're welcome to join us here at 1-800-826-1495 if you would like 1-800-826-1495 or to our email upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Tertia Delgin, before we get into some conservation issues and what uh, each of us can do, um, uh, why don't you tell me about uh, some of these, sounds like hair-raising stories, which I think many of us in the West could uh, go back a generation or two and tell some of these stories. So your question in the prologue, is it common for trespassers to divert water at gunpoint? Did your father have this experience? Did did this happen in your family, or did you encounter this? Um, he was out one morning and um, or afternoon during the day anyway, and 
uh, saw his a man he recognized, his neighbor, Arno, and out with his shovel, and he saw that he had a shotgun. And Dad um, went up to him and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm getting my water. And Dad said, you know, no, get off my property. And so the neighbor's... Um, shouldered his gun and said, Made, make me. Hmm. So my father, who had started living at the farm just a few years before that, was, you know, flabbergasted. <laughs> it seems so old west. And he turned his back on uh, the neighbor and went back and called his attorney. And, and then... This went on for years because the attorney wasn't able to stop um, the neighbor from diverting um, the water into a ditch. And so there was a a legal proceeding that went on and on and on. And at a certain point, uh, the attorney, um, dad got a bill from the attorney for way too much and thought, what? We haven't even solved this. What is this huge bill in the five digits? And called, and his attorney had killed himself. Wow. So now Dad had the neighbor with the gun, the dead attorney, and still the problem. So um, not for another few years does this get resolved. And then the neighbor killed himself. What? And uh, yeah, it was really here. Dad just wanted the nice spread like his grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, he's in this nightmare. Yeah. Um, and all about this simple thing well, that's in all of our lives, water. Yeah. Yeah, that's, in, uh, it's, it's, I mean, that, that's pretty spectacular what happened there, but it's, you know, violence over water. It's it's a uh, way of life, at least it has been in, in the West. Um so uh, at the time the water rights were curtailed, understand you you, you wrote uh, some of the farmers couldn't make a go of it. Some of them committed suicide. Yes, no one I know committed suicide, but there was a general the the feeling was one of such, and it still is of just huge despair. That part of Colorado actually tried to secede from the state of Colorado. I mean, they're really. Um, beaten down, and it's not just because the water was usurped, it's also because it's so close to Denver and other Front Range cities that they're the, um, both being preyed upon and also the victims of downstream um, water management that is damaging their property, and it's a mess. <laughs> it's a mess. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that secession effort. That's uh, I heard, I'd heard about that. I hadn't fully understood it. I guess some of these issues uh, played a big part, so what you're saying. Well, it all seems, I mean, it seems to a city person, it seems so ridiculous. Why would anyone want to secede? But when you're there and you see um, and hear about, for instance, people's basements filling with water that they can't even use, you know, their farmers are basements filling with water from uh, recharge projects, and they can't even pump the water out and use it to grow food, and you think, and can't get their representatives to do anything about it. It's it's um, infuriating. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's the height of irony, isn't it? Um, uh, what, another question that you pose, is costly flooding inevitable? One of your last chapters here, or Spectacles, uh, talks about flooding that happened. It affected uh, your, your your mother and father's farm, and, and your mother was out there at the time, right? Yes, she was. It, and it, and it, <laughs> it started, at, uh, the storm started up in Boulder, where I was lucky enough to snag the attention of the publishers, thank heaven, with the University Press of Colorado. Um, but when I, when I um, in my research, I learned how many um, acres of wetlands, a huge number, I mean, 60% of the wetlands along the Front Range were uh, destroyed in 
just a few years, in 12 years previous to, um, well, not to the flood, but anyway, over I'm, now I'm trying to recreate it in my mind during the conversation, but 60% of the flood, of the wetlands were destroyed, and the, a great deal of those end up being paved over. So if they're paved over, there's nowhere for the water to go. And when we see um, in other parts of the country flooding, because it's everywhere, um, few, I, I don't have the science to back this up. Probably the USGS, from which I've been a- unable to extract this, does. But if you have a lot paved, there's nowhere for the water to infiltrate. And it seems as if flooding really is inevitable. How could it help but be inevitable? There's nowhere to go, and the water is on the move. Uh, by the way, in that in that particular chapter or spectacle, um, my favorite part is your mother. They're trying to get her out. She insists on making the bed before she goes, and they have to actually carry her out. I could I could see maybe my mom doing that as as well. Uh, really humanized the story for me. We have an email uh, from uh, Steve. Um, Steve says, if I'm not mistaken, there are hearings this week about the proposed Lake Mead to St. George water pipeline. This seems on its face to be a preposterous undertaking, both in terms of its enormous cost, the fact that Lake Mead is probably drying, uh, uh, dying, rather, uh, I guess both, uh, he says dying, and uh, that there are other sources of water much nearer to St. George. But that is the opinion of a moderately informed resident of the St. George area, and I am wondering uh, if your guest is familiar with the proposed project and if she has uh, any thoughts. So first of all, are you familiar with this proposed project? No, I'm not, and I'm sorry I'm not. I um, encourage Steve to call his representatives and to try to, with whatever he finds out, to try to get um, his friends and associates to become involved, too. Um, Because my experience is that, you know, it's, the talking about it doesn't, it begins to fix it, but it's, it's, we, you need to get to, to the decision makers. Mm. You, got, you got to become an activist. I'm, I'm sorry I don't. Steve, yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry um, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, this, this is a, a, a proposal. I'm not sure you know, where it is in the decision making process, but uh, apparently hearings are coming up, so encourage people to get to those. Um, and, um, but this illustrates uh, a larger issue. You treat this in the book. Uh, it it does take a lot of energy. It does take a lot of. Uh, it's very costly to transport water, but we've done that a lot to um, to feed our cities. I think what I think the thing that's different about my book because there are many. I'm surrounded with wonderful books here that about that are about water more broadly. Um, but by taking on a a near place or a place that you have some chance of making a difference with in a city or in the country, wherever it is, just take one issue and um, try to make it yours. What I learned from doing that is so much about these other aspects of water, and it's also the reason I don't know about the pipeline you're talking about, because I'm too absorbed in a smaller area, but there's so much, there's as much diversity in a small area as there is in a broad area. That's my experience. This is like this macro and micro. Um, and we're all using the water is the other thing. And we're all using our wastewater pipes too. So, you know, we're all in a way um, part of the problem. Uh, tell me, we just have about uh, three minutes left. So first I want to get to uh, briefly, some of the things you're doing out at the the farm in in Colorado. What what sorts of good things are happening there? And, and then I want to bring it back to the city. Okay. Well, um, it, it, w- some of what we've done has been to the lower areas of the farm or close to the river, and they have um, the historically they're more prone to. Um, inundation, but we have wetlands there that we've um, restored somewhat, and or we're beginning to restore. And what's been great about that is the growth. Um, 
controversial is that, of course, they're using the, the, the vegetation uses water not to grow food, but it does grow habitat, and not all farmers think that's a good idea mm-hmm. so, because they want to grow food, of course. <laughs> but it's, what's nice is that it um, uses the water off the egg fields and uh, cleans it up before releasing it into the river. And because it supports birds and um, other wildlife and uh, contributes to biodiversity. So that's very exciting to me, and I'm glad we can do it. Hmm. And um, also, we've put more land into pasture land now with um, grasslands that aren't tilled. And that comes back to your um, comment about um, carbon sequestration, which is of course, increasingly important now. And with the farms being shut down all over the West and ranches, it's important to remember that that land um, could be doing jobs for our climate if it's maintained and if it keeps its water. That's the other part of um, the mosaic here. We just have a minute left. So back to the city, What and you've worked a lot on these issues. What... What are some uh, brief things that we, that we can do in the cities? Uh, I think it's, you know, the, the water, For we don't remember this. It's the water is, you know, it's nurturing, it's wet, it's, um, we can't live without it, and yet we ignore that. So everyone in the city could be thinking this, that water's like... Um, you know, it's like a lover, you know, <laughs> but you, but we don't know where it comes from, from necessarily, and we don't know where it goes after it leaves here, leaves here. And so if we think, you know, logically, that's not very smart to have this thing that we're totally dependent on and not know where it comes from and not know where it's going. So um, I guess my counsel is, like, get to know it. <laughs> mm. Yeah, a, a mindset and, and knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the uh, book is The Man Who Thought He Owned Water. The author is Tertia Delgin. She has joined us uh, for the hour. This is out from University Press of uh, Colorado. Uh, thank you. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. And uh, we hope you'll join us tomorrow, of course, for Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.